Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly. And pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. We'll open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 27. I want us to consider this passage that we read together earlier in its entirety. We, we read the whole chunk in its entirety, this whole story filled with all these details and names and places. And I've entitled this sermon, Destruction and Deliverance. Destruction and Deliverance. Because there are moments in our life where all we see is destruction. For some of you, that, that describes your recent history. Your family, your finances, your children, your marriage. Everywhere you look, it's destruction. Perhaps this has been a really difficult year for you or even a difficult decade. And we know, we know that, that just the, the hands on a clock changing on the 1st of January at 12 a.m. changes nothing practically in our lives, but we look to it as if it offered us some new hope because there has been so much hurt and pain and loss and disappointment. And I want us to see from the Word of God that God's Word doesn't gloss over those things. God's Word looks directly into the eyes of human suffering and gives voice to it. We read this story of a shipwreck. Paul is going to recount in his own words some of the things that he has suffered in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. He says this, three times I was shipwrecked. Has anyone ever been in a car accident here before? Anybody not been in a car accident here before? Oh, they are, they are so much fun. You should try them out sometime. No, it, it's terrifying. It's life-threatening. It can be painful. It can be deadly. And Paul begins with something that we just whoop, read as if it is uh, secondary material. I was shipwrecked three times. For the sake of the gospel, I was shipwrecked three times. We have this harrowing account that we're going to spend a little bit of time today looking at. He said, this happened to me two other times. I spent a day and a night adrift in the sea. That's not in this story, by the way. That's one of the other ones. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers within the church, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, the Bible does not gloss over that sometimes life sucks. It, it paints no rosy picture for Christians to put a plastic smile on and pretend like everything is fine. It looks square into the face of human suffering. I want to suggest to you this morning, especially if you're coming from a place of suffering and heartache, that Paul's suffering was real. And your suffering, your heartache is real. So let's not attempt some superficial spirituality that feigns happiness with that fake plastic Christian smile. Hey, man, brother, how you doing? Sister, how you doing? Oh, you know what? It's been rough, but we're doing good. We're doing good. And inside you are dying. Now, I'm not saying that you just walk around looking like Winnie the Pooh all the time with that little dark rain cloud that follows you around. If you do, it's probably us living in our self-pity. What I'm asking for is honesty with brothers and sisters. Honestly acknowledging what we're walking through. I, I think even worse than the fake plastic smile is believing that we can simply have enough faith. If I just, if I believe the right things about God, if I can muster up enough faith, or even worse, if I can give enough offerings, 
bad things won't happen. Pull it into a secular worldview. If I can do enough good in this world, well, I'm a good person. And so my question, we hear this all the time, is why do bad things happen to good people? What they're arguing is I do more good than bad. Therefore, I should not have bad things happen to me. The problem is God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And if we believe that, that will shake us to our core when hard times, when bad things happen. Some of you are glad to be done with this past year because the new year promises a new hope. I have bad news for you. Isn't that encouraging? You brought last year's difficulty with you into the new year. The new year was fine until you showed up. Right? You brought it with you. What were you thinking? <laughs> Acts chapter 27 is a moment-by-moment moment disaster uh, it, it's almost like they're the commentators just, just giving a commentary on, on the disastrous events going on in Paul's life. Difficulty, hardship. How about this one? Having the right answer ahead of time, but no one listens to you. Anybody ever felt like that before? A life blown off course, lost at sea, hopelessness, shipwreck. Listen very carefully to these words, though. None of those are the point of this chapter. Those details are not the point of, those, of this chapter. Those details are not the point of this chapter in your life either. That is not the main thing that is going on. No, we are meant to look through the paper-thin veneer of these events and see the providential hand of God sovereignly guiding every step. Oh, it's so difficult, though, because when we are up close in the middle of the situation, it seems like that is the most solid, real thing going on anywhere in this world. It's the most close and intense and personal thing, and yet when we back up, we see it is a very thin veneer, and on the other side stands the good and providential hand of God. J.B. Polhill, a commentator, professor at Southern Baptist Theological University, says this, in the end, final deliverance came. All were saved. Paul's God had indeed not abandoned them to the anger of the sea. One cannot miss the emphasis on divine providence. It is precisely through the detailed telling of this story that the lesson has its greatest impact. This is narrative theology at its best. This is a story, it's a narrative given to us for the purpose of theology that we might understand our God better. I would suggest to you, Christian, what you have been going through is narrative theology. It is a story of your life meant to not point to you, but point you to God and everyone else who hears your story to God. This is narrative as theology. It is meant to teach us something about the nature and character of God as we trace the timeline of people and events in history. That's true for the Bible, that is true for all of human history, and it is true for your life. Although I think it's more important that you understand that for your life. Because we assume that when it comes to the Bible. Well, of course that's what God was doing. Tell that to the 276 people on the boat for four day, 14 days without food, lost at sea. They didn't feel like, you know what? I'll bet God's really got this under control. No, they were people just like you and me. In fact, most of them are not Christians at all. They're, they're pagans. They're unbelievers. They found themselves with the same emotions that you find yourself in, going, God, how on earth could you have let this happen to me? Yet we're not meant to focus on those details, but the God who is at work behind them. So why is this important to you? Why is this important to me? Especially me as someone who has brought all the problems of last year into this year. Why are we looking at this? Well, the reason is so that you might peer through the veil of your own circumstances and see the providence of God. Your circumstances, the ones that have been consuming all of your time and effort and energy and emotion, that you might look past them and see God's hand. God's providence. Providence isn't a word that we use very much anymore. I gave you the definition here. It is divine guidance or care. This idea that God is sovereignly working, whether we see it, identify it or not, in every human circumstance. 
there's a second definition where we actually begin to talk about that so much, identifying that God is the sovereign ruler of all things, that when we say providence, we actually mean God himself. So understanding, having this idea, conceiving of God as this ruler, the, the one who is guiding human destiny. This same God that held Paul securely in the palm of his hand now holds you. That is the best news you've heard this year. The same God that held Paul, lost at sea for 14 days, shipwrecked three times. The same God that held Paul securely in his hand now holds you. See it in the word of the Lord. Isaiah 41, verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. Oh, picture a small child who is frightened and alone, and suddenly there the father is with him. He doesn't say, suck it up and walk across the street. I know you're, you're scared of traffic and you're overwhelmed by the big city. Just be a man. Grow up. Walk across the street. He does what every parent would do, which is reaches down and takes that hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. John 10, verse 28 and 29 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Oh, we are secure in Christ because we are in Christ and in the Father. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. The problem is this thin veneer of our life and circumstances seems so overwhelming that we say, God, there is no way that you're still in control of this. You have let go of my hand. I don't feel like you have my best interest at heart. Oh, I plead with you, Christian, hear the words of the psalmist. Most of the psalms describe human agony. The majority of the psalms are about human suffering, and in the midst of suffering, he says, and yet there's this light that pierces the darkness. You make known to me the path of life. Everything else, think about the contrast that's being given here. Everything else is the path of death and destruction around him. Oh, this is deliverance in the middle of destruction. And in your presence, not, not when you change my circumstances, not when you fix all the things that I think you need to fix, but in your presence, in the middle of those circumstances is Fullness of joy. Not temporary joy that you get from watching a funny movie or if you're my wife, seeing someone fall down. I don't understand that completely, although don't we all do it? We kind of laugh when somebody falls down. She just generally does it louder than everybody else. No, those are, those are temporary reprieves from our suffering. He's saying in the presence of God, in this path of life and light, in the midst of darkness, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. When all around you is destruction, fix your eyes on the deliverance of God. Man, that does not mean God is going to step in and fix this situation the way you think it needs to be fixed. It doesn't. But if you will fix your eyes on God in the midst of your situation, that view produces an unshakable hope in the God who saves. By the way, that's all we sang this morning. Again and again and again, in the midst of storm and trouble, I will trust you. You are the God who saves. Therefore, when sorrow overwhelms me like sea billows, unstoppable, literally, there, there's nothing we can do to stop them, I will say it is well with my soul because I've trusted in the king of the sea. Oh, that's good news. I think it's important. I just want to hit pause here just for a second. It's important to highlight this doesn't mean that we get the outcome we've been hoping for. I trust in God and everything gets fixed. Remember back in Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are dragged before the king because they refuse to bow down to his idol and his statue and worship it. And they're going to be executed. They're going to be burned alive in this fiery furnace and they say, our God can deliver us. 
Our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't do it in the way that we are hoping and wishing that it would happen, we refuse to bow the knee to you. Oh, that we would have strengthened Christians who say, even if my life doesn't turn out the way I think it was supposed to, I will not bow the knee to selfishness and self-pity. I won't bow the knee to anger at God or men around me. I won't bow the knee to a practical atheism that says, if God did not do this for me, I reject him. That's the, the point of this story that we're given. If you remember the context at the end of chapter 26 in Acts the last comment that we get, it's behind the scenes after he has sort of had this pseudo-trial. The judges step out of the room and they say, you know what, we could have set this guy free. This shipwreck doesn't have to happen. The end of chapter 26 says, had he not appealed his case to Caesar, we could have just let him go. Look at verse 1 in Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that they should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, is almost methodical about giving us names of people and places and physical details in this story. It's almost overwhelming. In fact, we're not even going to talk about most of these details in here. I'll just give you a couple behind the scenes. When you go and you read some of the commentaries, what does it mean that they threw the tackle overboard, that they did it with their own hands? They don't know. He gives us details that we don't even know what they mean. So the point is not the details. How many times in your life have you been so overwhelmed by the details? And here's what you said. If I could only understand what it means, then I would be okay. That's not why we're given this story. We're given this story that we might trust in God. Here's our temptation when we read scriptures like this. Let's just bring it right down to a practical human level. We're reading names of people and places that not only we don't know, but we can't hardly pronounce, right? If I asked you to read this passage out loud in front of the church, most of you would have suddenly developed some sort of illness that prevented you from coming to church this morning, right? Or just flat said, no, I'm not doing it. When you're reading it in your personal devotions, you come across it and you go, don't know it, don't know it, skip. We just sort of skip ahead. Luke is not giving us these names so that we would be better acquainted with people like Julius and Aristarchus, who, by the way, gets mentioned earlier in Acts chapter 19 as being a fellow traveler with Paul, someone who is going from place to place with him. We're not giving them so that we know some interesting tidbits about Adramidium or Cilicia or Pamphylia or Myra, although we have a young lady named Myra in here. So get to know her. She's worth knowing some stuff about. That's not why Luke tells us this in the story. It's not that these details are unimportant. They are important. There's value in them, but they're not meant to be our focus. Which is somebody who doesn't like pronouncing weird words in front of people. It makes me go, so why bother? Like, what, what's the point? Why bother telling me them at all? Here's, here's the why. When I read to you a second ago from Isaiah 41, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I'm the one who helps you. Some of you in this room thought, yeah, but you don't know my details. I, the Lord, am with you. I'm holding your hand. I'm going to see you through this. And we thought, yeah, but you don't know what I've been through. You don't know my details. That would be great, except there's this person. Great, God's in control. God loves me. He's got a plan for my life. Except you don't know my job. Oh. You don't know that teacher I have at school. You don't know that teenager that I'm struggling with at home. You don't know that parent that I wrestle with. How was that? Yeah? I don't, we always pick on the teenagers. We never do the teenage back to the parents. I'm like, thought I'd try it out. Thanks. That was just so they come back to class next week. That was it. That was, that was pandering. Uh, these were real people in Paul's life. This was a real problem in Paul's life. The things that you face, the details that we don't know, all of the names and issues in your life are real problems. 
In fact, it's interesting to note that Luke places himself along on this ride. Luke, the author of this book, is on the boat. He's part of the shipwreck. Look at verses 18 and 20 back in Acts 27. Since we were we, right? He's telling the story about Paul, but he's part of this we. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's bad. How many of you agree that's bad? Right? I don't know, I don't know what 2019 looked like for you. That's slightly worse. All right? This is, this is in, in the category of epic bad. Like, things can't get any worse. Ha-ha! Verse 42 when it looks like we might be saved. You know what? Things were so bad, we gave up hope, but now we might be saved. Verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. After 14 days of starving from seasickness and thinking I would die in the open seas and be eaten by a shark, it now looks like I can see land, and so their plan is to kill me. We call that going from bad to worse. Right? That's... that's epically bad. Why are we given this story? Here it is. So that on your bad to worse days, you can be reminded that there is a God who knows your name and is lovingly in control of this moment right now. The one that you feel like is hopeless and out of control, there is a God at work behind the scenes who is in control lovingly of this moment. He knows your name. Remember back in Acts chapter 9 when God first calls Paul, who's then known as Saul to himself. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The very first thing Jesus starts with is, I know your name. I know your background. I know where you came from. I know what you're suffering. I know what you've done. I know who you are. In the midst of that, he says, I'm going to give you my purpose, my plan for your life, which is you are going to testify about me to the Jews, to the Gentiles. You're going to stand before kings and do this. But look back now. That was Acts chapter 9. Look at Acts 27, verse 24. Don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. This is the same plan. The plan hasn't changed because of a shipwreck or two. God's plan for your life has not changed because of relational things or job things or financial things or issues with family or kids or whatever it is, God's plan is still on course for your life. He still knows your name. He is still in control of your destiny. You can trust him. The reason we have to say that is because in the midst of it, everything else to us says, no, you can't. So let's look just briefly at this journey. If we were on this journey, Right? There's, no, there's no fake spirituality here. If we were on this journey, we would have given up about seven times. Number one, it's hopeless. I'm going to Rome to be executed. Let's not forget why he's on this journey. He's going to lose his head in Rome for the sake of the gospel. And then comes everything else. The first person we're introduced to is this character named Julius. He's a Roman centurion. It's interesting. He's, he's told to find transport to them from the city where they are all the way to Rome. So they're in Caesarea, just attached to uh, Judea there. They're in Caesarea, and they have to find a way to Rome. Now, they don't have like a transport bus. They don't have a helicopter that they can put them on. And so they basically get on boats and hitchhike from here to there, from different boats. Uh, so they get on one, and they're, they're going to go on this commercial shore boat. In other words, it can't go out to sea. It's got to stay close to shore. Think of this as being like a local delivery truck that's going to take you from this town to the next town to the next town. They're just hopping on the back of a delivery truck. So on day one, they go from Caesarea to Sidon, which is about 70 miles on the first day, right? That's verse three. The next day we put in at Sidon. It only took us a day to go 70 miles. That's important because they're going to try and go 30 miles and end up getting blown out to sea in just a little bit. The following day, the next day, verse 4, putting out to sea, from there we sailed in Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. 
because the winds were against us. Why is Paul on this boat? Come on, where's he going? He's going to Rome. What's going to happen in Rome? He's going to die, right? He's, he's going he's to like testify about Jesus, about his case before Caesar, but it's going to result in his head coming off, all right? So as if that's not bad enough, they get on the boat on day two and the winds are against them. I love that this verse is here. I absolutely love it. They could have just told us about the shipwreck and skipped and the winds were against them, except how many times in your life have you felt like I'm in the midst of a bad situation and then one more thing happens? Come on. That's when we go, now I know God doesn't care. Isn't it? Oh, man. It's, this is terrible. This is my whole life sucks. Christian, here in the midst of your suffering, the suffering of Paul, as God goes, exactly the same thing. The same place that you, has been, you have been, as if anything else could go wrong, you're not alone. By the way, just we're not going to go into most of these details. Uh, when I read this, I'm like, what does sailing in Lee of Cyprus mean? How many of you know, before I say it, what sailing in Lee of Cyprus couple hands, the smarties at the party there. Uh, for the rest of us, thanks for putting your hands low so we don't have to judge you and look down on you. Uh, it just means uh, sailing under the shelter of the island. So you sail real close to it. That way the island becomes a windbreak for you. So uh, next time that you're tailgating someone as you're driving down the road and your wife's like, back off, what are you doing? I'm, just, I'm driving in lee of the truck ahead of me. I think NASCAR calls that drafting or something like, all right. <laughs> when the winds of life threaten you, uh, uh, the reason I bring that up, you need some place that you can steer super close to as well. Hopefully it's not the car ahead of you. Hopefully you have a place. You can have a gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ that when times get tough, especially then, we need it before then, but especially then, that we can draw together. You need people. You need brothers and sisters in your life. When the winds are against you, you can go right next to them. Man, at least for this next little period of time, I have to stay right by you. See, as they are going up the coastline, they change from being against the coastline to towards Cyprus that's right there in the middle. That means sometimes we have to alter our course. We have to stop doing what we normally do and get close to other people. Our temptation is to do the opposite. Hard times come, and so we go, I just need to be alone and sort this out. They're going to travel 130 miles to Myra and get on a bigger boat. We're not going to take a whole lot of time with this. I'm just going to race through a couple of these details. Get on a bigger boat. It's an Egyptian grain ship that's headed towards Italy. It's the same direction that they're going. They hitchhike a ride on it. Verse 7 says, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Snidus. This should have not taken a couple days. Remember the first day they go 70 miles in one day. This was a relatively short trip that they were doing, but it took them several days because things are getting bad. That the time of year that they are traveling is getting dangerous. And so they change course again. They, they sail under the shelter again, and they find a harbor of fair havens on Crete. And Paul says we should stay. Look at verses 9 through 12. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, which I would actually say is probably smart. Right? If I get on an airplane with you and you're like, you know what? I got a bad feeling about this. Let's turn her around. I'm going to hope we listen to the pilot and not you. Although Paul happened to be right. Uh, verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on chance that some, somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So he mentions that the fast is already over. That, that's the fast of the Day of Atonement, which means this is happening in late fall. That's important because in late fall, most sea travel came to a stop. It, it got really dangerous 
somewhere between September and November, and in November, it stopped completely until about February, and they are pushing right on the edge of that. They're right on that edge where we really probably shouldn't even be attempting this anymore. This is risky business. That's what Paul is saying. He hasn't had some angel stand next to him and say, don't go. He's looking at the facts around him saying, I think this is a terrible idea. And yet, how many times have we, just like these sailors, said, yes, but there's something better just around the corner? Just sort of subtle dissatisfaction with where we are. Man, if I could just have this next thing, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be satisfied. If I could just move from this job to this job, then I would be happy. Even more insidious. If I could just move from this wife to this wife, then I would be happy. When they say that, they're about 33 miles from Phoenix. Now remember, the first day they go about 70 miles and it took them one day, right? This is half a day's trip. This is a morning sail is how far away they are from Phoenix. And they say, let's try and go there. Here's, here's what muddies the water here a little bit. They're kind of right. Verse 12 tells us that the harbor wasn't suitable for winter. They were not in a good place. It didn't matter what they chose it was a bad decision. Have you ever felt like in your life you're just stuck between that proverbial rock and a hard place? It doesn't matter what you do. It's going to turn out bad. It doesn't matter what you choose. I'm in such a bad place. It doesn't matter. It's going to turn out bad. Consider, Christian, in your life for just a moment. When we are in those situations in those moments, we are tempted to think and believe that God does not see and God does not care. Isn't that our temptation? This is why we're given this story. That's the point of narrative as theology. It is to tell you God sees and God cares. God knows exactly the circumstances that you are in. That does not mean everything immediately or even eventually is going to work out the way that you think it should. They get on the boat for a morning sail and are blown 470 miles off course. It is about 475 miles from the island of Crete to Malta where they land. They were going 30 miles. They are lost at sea. J.B. Polehill again, the storm raged on. The stars and sun were darkened by the clouds. There was no way to locate their position. They had no compass in those days. Despair set in and all hope was abandoned. Luke writes this story with another layer for Christians behind it. There's a lot of ancient narratives that tell the story of shipwreck, and they usually involve someone losing hope in the middle of the storm, and yet Luke writes it in a very specific way. He says, we gave up hope, now think as a Christian, of being saved. There's another layer sort of underneath what Luke is writing here. For the believer, being saved immediately shifts us out of the temporal into the eternal. And yet, Christian, I would ask you, how many times have your temporary struggles made you question your eternal salvation? Oh, all too often. Paul, his traveling companions, including Luke, who's on the boat, everyone else on board were in the same place that you and I have been eventually saying, oh God, please just let this end. Just let it be done. Two weeks lost at sea. Two weeks, no food. Not because they didn't have it, but they were too sick and worried to eat. Lost at sea, waiting to die. Until, look at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. I love it. By the way, that is not an excuse for you to go around going, I told you, you should have listened to me. Right? If you think that, you're probably going to end your marriage. Don't do that. This is a terrible idea. This is Paul's humanity coming through a little bit, all right? You should have listened to me and should have not set sail from Crete, incurring injury and loss, and yet now I urge you, take heart. Oh, Christian who is struggling this morning, hear the words of Paul echo through the centuries, take heart. 
For there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Oh, Paul says there is a God supernaturally at work that we can trust more than this ship and this storm. He is is more sure than the shipwreck that is headed our way. But I love that Paul starts with, I told you so. You should have listened to me. More important thing that he says is take heart. Last night, an angel, a messenger from God, the God to whom I belong, spoke and his words are trustworthy. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul is again expressing this hope and faith. He says, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Christian who is struggling right now, you are not your own. You are not on your own. You were bought with a price. There is a God who loves you and has paid to redeem you. His plan is still in effect for your life. Therefore, Paul says, honor God with your bodies. That God is in control of this moment, this storm, this ship. God is in control of this marriage, these finances, these kids, whatever your issue is that you are struggling with, realize God is in control. Hear hear Paul as, as if his voice could echo through the centuries and give us that perspective on board that ship. When God created the heavens and the earth, brought forth the mountains and the islands from the seas, one of the reasons, not the reason, but one of the reasons that God made the island of Malta was that so in the middle of this storm, I would have something to crash into. One of the reasons that God has given you the family he's given you, the church he has given you, the Christian brothers and sisters he's given you, is so in the middle of your storm you would have something to crash into. This is part of God's good and gracious design for your life. This meant that exactly where he was was part of God's plan for him, and those who surrounded him were part of God's plan for him. So when the sailors say, you know what, I think we can make it to shore if we take the lifeboat and drop it. Paul says, if you do that, verse 30, we won't survive. I need you. God placed you right here on this boat with me. God put you in this church with me. God has placed you in this situation with me. I need you, and you need me, if we're going to make it through this. This is part of God's survival plan for us. I can't do it without you. Christian, I would suggest most of the time we don't think like that. I can't do this without you. We say, you know what? I'm fine. If I have problems, I'll call you. That's backwards. Oh, that God would let us see this joining together, one of another in this church, this ecclesia, this gathering together as God's perfect pairing of skills and gifts, as a refuge, as an encouragement, as the rebuke that we sometimes need. I can't do this without you. That's meaningful membership. Look at verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them, take some food saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it will give you the strength. For not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. Luke again writes a second layer underneath this story. The literal translation in verse 33 where he says, take this food, it will give you strength, it is, it is necessary for your salvation. Is God sovereignly in control? Yes. Must you do some things to be necessary for you to make it through for your salvation in this moment? Absolutely. And then he comes to something that's the most explicit of his underlying things. Most of you, when you heard these words, immediately got it, and he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it. The, the wording here is striking and unmistakable. Looking to Paul again, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that on the 
Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We have this echo. We have this image of communion going on on this boat. By the way, the word in here for gave thanks is Eucharisto, which I guarantee I'm not saying that right, but uh, it, it's a, a combination of two Greek words, good and gift. It's, igno- it's not just saying, thank you, Jesus, for this food. Please bless it. Amen. So I feel spiritual that we prayed for our food. It's actually expressing, God, this is your good gift that is effective. It is properly acknowledging God's grace works well, is another way to translate it. His grace works well for our eternal gain and his glory to give thanks. Literally, thankful for God's good grace. This is happening when? Come on, talk back to me. When is he doing this? When is he praying this? In the middle of the storm. What's about to happen? Shipwreck. And he says, God, your grace works well in my life. Did it feel like God's grace worked well in his life? Not at the minute. Oh, it's so important for you and I to rightly orient ourselves in the middle of the storms of life. It is is kind of sad to me that most of the churches that use the word Eucharist in looking at communion have over the centuries evolved it into when they speak of the Eucharist, they're actually talking about the bread. The in general communion, but specifically the bread that they're going to take together. And I would say that misses the point entirely. Communion is meant to remind us. It's meant to preach to us the good gift of God's salvation is effective for my life. It is more effective in my life than my sin. Every week when we come to the Lord's table together because that's what they did in the New Testament. Every week when we come to the table of the Lord, it is preaching a sermon to you. God's grace works well in your life. In fact, it works better than your sin. It's more powerful than the circumstances that you find yourself in. Sadly, when they say that it applies to the bread, that's just wrong. This was not a communion service. There were 276 people on this boat, and most of them weren't believers. This was not Paul giving impromptu communion. This was Paul testifying to his faith, proclaiming his trust in the resurrected Savior in the middle of the storm. This was a powerful symbol of the effective saving power of God, the God who Paul worshipped, the God who to whom Paul belonged, the God who owned that ship, the God who owned that island, the God who owned his life, the God in whose hands I am safe, let's eat. It's effectively what Paul says. Today, if you go to this spot on Malta, there stands a statue of St. Paul. In fact, it stands on St. Paul's island, overlooking St. Paul's bay. But this is not a monument to Paul. Any more than years from now, you will look back at the hardships that you have endured and see them as a monument and a tribute to you and to your hard work. No, this whole story is a monument to the God who owns the island and owns Paul and owns you and owns me, the God to whom we belong, the God whom we worship. I have a testimony. Worship team, if you guys would come on up. We prayed last week. Think, think in the context here of like overcoming difficulties and, and struggles. And 20 years from now, we look back and go, oh man, I did a fantastic job of pulling through that one. If we could just get over that, I think we would, we would put to death a lot of narcissism that rules our walk with God anyways. Last week, we prayed for a young man named Keith. Uh, Keith McMahon. Uh, I think he's like 9 or 10, something like that. He's been in the hospital down in Indianapolis. Uh, he went into the hospital before Christmas sometime and basically had all kinds of body systems start shutting down. As they got them back online, he had lost the ability to speak and eat and move and do all kinds of stuff. Some of you may have saw this. 
Uh, yesterday, his mom put this on Facebook at eight minutes to midnight. Isn't it funny how God so often shows up at eight minutes to midnight? Not early, not in the daylight like we would hope. It's right at that last minute when the salvation can only come from God and not from us. Update on Keith, our son. Thankful for all, the, all those who have been sincerely praying for Keith's full recovery. Keith's speech is back. He's talking normally. Since he was admitted to the hospital, he's been weak. He's been working with physical and occupational and speech therapies. Strong doses of meds for five days was not effective. There was no improvement. Uh, a group of neurodocs were puzzled themselves, uh, had to use pen and paper, alphabet, numbers, thumbs up, thumbs down to try and communicate. And then on January 1st, Praise God and thank God Keith received a miracle healing, miracle healing in quotation marks. He woke up talking, getting out of bed and walking. This instant improvement alarmed the medical people who were involved in his care, and they all showed up in his room with unbelievable expressions on their face to witness and or came to and listened to him talk. Unscheduled swallowing studies were done because of the sudden change. He had been on a feeding tube, and he just started eating. So they had to do a little research, find out what was behind that. Uh, that night, Keith woke up and pointed out on us. I, sorry, it's kind of broken up here. I hurriedly went and got his alphabet board and come up with a sentence. There are three of you. Mom, dad, and he was pointing to somebody else in between her and her husband. He insisted that the other person he didn't know. So we called the nurse in and told Keith, is this the other person? He said, no, it was another one. And then uh, he cried until he fell asleep. The next morning he woke up able to speak, able to eat, able to do all these things. We can believe nothing else that this was an angel who came in. That was the third person in the room, at the time where no one else had an answer, God was sovereignly in control. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we don't always get the answers that we've been hoping and praying for. Thank you, Lord, that there have been thousands of people praying for this young man. And yet, 20 years from now, if we look back and say he did a great job of healing himself, or we look back and say we did a great job of praying for him, we will have looked at the details and missed the point of the story. God, you are great. You do great things. Some of them we understand, and we say, Lord, this is glorious. And some of them are hard and difficult. We say, God, we don't understand it, but you are still good, and you are still glorious. So I pray, oh God, would you help us to trust you? Help us to rightly respond to the situations in our life with putting our hope and our trust in you. So I want to ask you a question in the middle of your storm, in the middle of your every other day, where do you look? Here's what the writer to Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus. The NIV says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. The Christian standard says, keeping your eyes on Jesus. If you're in the middle of a storm, hear the testimony, not as a testimony to the power of prayer or the power of that young man to heal himself, but the power of our God to intervene in human activity. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. When you feel like giving up, consider him. There are no seven easy steps to fixing yourself or anything else in your life. It says consider him. When we're blown out of the water, it's because we're looking in the wrong place. You're looking at your problems. You're looking at the situation, and the word of God commands you. It doesn't suggest it as a good idea. If you think it'll work, it commands you consider him who endured from sinners, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow faint-hearted. Christian, if you've grown faint-hearted this past year, it's because you have failed to consider him. Consider him. In the midst of your struggle, look to Jesus and refuse to look away. 
Oh, how quickly we forget. We need this daily reminder. We need this weekly reminder of the effective grace of God in your life. You need brothers and sisters who will gather with you on a Sunday morning, who you can call on a Thursday afternoon, but especially as we come to the table of the Lord of communion, of this Eucharist, this giving thanks for the good and effective grace of God in our life, look to him and refuse to look away. And by the way, if you are one who goes, I have not looked to him, here is the simple remedy from Scripture, repent right now. If you're the one who goes, man, that is me. I have been refusing to do that. Repent. That's why God is bringing it to your heart right now that you might turn to him, that you might trust in him. We would love to talk with you about that. We would love to walk with you through that process, but it doesn't start because a pastor talks with you. It starts because the Holy Spirit of God is right now tugging at your heart. Stand with me to your feet. I want to suggest that one of the reasons that we grow tired and weary and frustrated is we're praying the wrong prayers. Now, it's not, not necessarily the bad thing to pray. It's just maybe not the helpful thing to pray, which is, God, here's the situation. Here's how I'd like you to fix this situation. Please do it as soon as possible. And then when God doesn't do that, we say, God, you haven't heard my prayers. God, you have not been listening. Can I suggest a slightly different approach to you this morning? And that is acknowledging your weakness before God and acknowledging his sovereignty. God, you know the struggle I'm in. You know how terrifying this situation is. God, would you come be with me right now in the middle of this storm? Help me to trust you. Work your perfect will in the middle of this. I want us to just stand before the Lord for just a second. For some of you, you need to pray that prayer right now. God, you know this struggle, you know this storm, you know how overwhelmed and lost I feel in it. Would you come be with me right now in the middle of this? Help me trust you. Some of you need to, as you pray that, repent of sinful thoughts and attitudes that you have had towards the sovereign creator of the universe who you've believed did not do a very good job. I want to say it's good to be honest with God and it's dangerous to blaspheme God and call what he does evil. If that's been you, again, just repent of it. God, forgive me forgiving me of accusing you of wrongdoing. We're told in Job, with all that he endured, he did not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing. If you've been guilty of that, repent right now. If there's anything else in your heart that is preventing you from coming to the table of the Lord, deal with it right now. God is sovereignly at work behind the storm of your life. He is waiting. He is actually calling out to you call back to him. And in a moment, come take the elements. There's wine on this side. There's juice on your right. Just stand before the sovereign Lord for just a minute and call out to him.